Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. CD Danger shares slump once again as the IPO criticism builds. Amazon strikes back. The Pentagon's 10 billion Jedi contract with Microsoft cancelled. And Ever Given goes. The ship that blocked the Suez Canal is finally free. It's Wednesday, and today we begin with breaking news. This is CNN Breaking News. The White House is condemning the assassination of Haiti's president, calling it a, quote, horrific attack. President Jovenel Moyes was killed in his home overnight by a group of unidentified attackers. Officials say the First Lady was also shot and is receiving medical treatment. CNN's Melissa Bell is covering the story for us. Melissa, awful, awful news. What more do we know? Well, extraordinary. A president assassinated in his own bed uh, overnight. Extraordinary events that have taken place in the Haitian capital and a measure, really, Julia, of the insecurity uh, that has really come to dominate the country and pose such a problem to the government of uh, Moïse himself uh, until his assassination overnight. We await to hear more details on the state in which uh, of health of the First Lady. Also, what the reaction of ordinary Haitians will be Almost since his election, first in 2016, an election that was then overturned because of fraud allegations, and in the re-election in 2017, uh, the uh, governments, successive governments of uh, Juvenal Moïse have been contested from the streets by the opposition parties, with many of the opposition parties accusing him of trying to gain an ever tighter hold on power. All eyes were very much on the presidential elections that were due to be held later this year in order to try and get the country out of at least the political crisis in which it found itself. Uh, Now many questions about what happens next in a country that's been beset not only, Julia, by that political crisis, but an economic one. We're talking about the poorest country in the Americas where 60% of the population live on less than $2 a day. Lots of protests these last few years against the Moise rule, allegations of corruption uh, there as well at the center of those. And much will depend over the coming hours and days on how the people react to this news. With that statement we've had from the acting prime minister, the source of all that information we have so far about precisely what happened within the private residence of the presidency overnight, uh, that uh, statement clearly saying, look, Forces of law and order are in control of security and everything's under control. It's really what happens over the coming hours, I think, and days. It'll give us a sense of whether that holds or not, Julia. Oh, yeah. And what about the international reaction, Melissa? That's been pouring in uh, condemnation uh, of of the assassinations becoming from several countries, including uh, the United Kingdom uh, overnight, the United States, as you mentioned. Uh, And uh, this is a country that the world will be keeping a very close eye on. It had already been because of the instability of it. You'll remember it was back in 1994, the United States had sent troops in to restore uh, the power of the first 
uh, a properly elected president of Haiti, uh, Aristide, who'd come to power in 1990. It was the first time the country had held free and fair elections. He'd been overthrown by a coup d'etat that Washington at the time, back in 1994, had considered sufficiently threatening to the stability of the region that some 3,000 American forces were sent in. So a lot of attention will be paid over the coming uh, days, as I say, to the security there. All the more so, I think, Julia, because what we've seen these last few months beyond the political crisis, beyond the economic crisis, the worsening of the situation, the rising uh, prices of the cost of living for, as I say, a population that is under extraordinary pressure economically already, is also this worsening of the insecurity, the, the gangs, the extortion, the kidnappings, the ransoms. This is something we've seen ex 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 increasing over the course of the last few months. And we have yet to learn really what sort of assassination happened overnight, whether it was political, whether it was a question of criminal gangs. Either way, it is a measure, Julia, of just how chaotic and difficult life is in Haiti right now. Crisis upon crisis. Melissa Bell, thank you so much for that. And we will continue to follow this story here on CNN and bring you any further developments the moment we get them. For now, let's bring it back to first move. And what's coming up on today's show, Amazon versus Microsoft. The force is with the new Amazon CEO, Andy Jassy, as the Pentagon abandons the $10 billion Jedi contract. It's Rubio versus Wall Street, too. The U.S. senator blasting the NYSE for allowing the DD listing. And the UAE versus Saudis. The OPEC remains deadlocked over production. The oil market still searching and hoping for some level of clarity. And last but not least, as you were just hearing for football fans, it's all about England versus Denmark, too, in today's Euro 2020 semi-finals. With sincere apologies to our delightful Danish viewers this time around, let me say once again, go England. And congratulations, of course, to Italy as well. And what about the Bulls versus the Bears on Wall Street? Well, it's clear to me with tech rising to new records as Treasury yields tumble to February lows. And in Europe as well, Germany as you can see, outperforming as the EU raises its growth outlook for the eurozone to near 5% this year. The big risk, of course, to all of this, the Delta variant and the spread of that. In Asia, a seventh straight session of losses, meanwhile, for Hong Kong, led by technology stocks with reports Beijing will tighten rules on Chinese listings overseas. I tell you what, I don't expect any Chinese tech IPOs in particular in the United States for a while. And probably in hindsight, the postponed Ant Group IPO, if you remember that, was probably a line in the sand. What about U.S. Congress? Well, fascinating, as I've mentioned already, to see Florida Senator Marco Rubio lambasting Didi's listing on the NYSE as, quote, irresponsible. And that's where we begin the drivers. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Irresponsible. He also called it reckless, Claire. And he pointed to the fact that pensioners, people whose life savings are invested in the stock market, will have also lost out. And he makes a valid point there, I think. Yeah, Julia, his point is is the issue of transparency uh, around Chinese uh, Chinese companies that are listed in the U.S. This, this is what he said. He said, even if the stock rebounds, American investors still have no insight into the company's financial strength because the Chinese Communist Party blocks U.S. regulators from reviewing the books. He continues, that puts the investments of American retirees at risk and funnels desperately needed U.S. dollars 
into Beijing. Now, the issue of of whether the Chinese Communist Party blocks uh, access to to reviewing the books of these companies, this is something the SEC uh, has spoken about in the past. They say that the the problem is that that, that, uh, US regulators can't get access to the the firms in China who audit these US-listed companies. And that's uh, where they say that that a key risk uh, in these companies lies. And, and, you know, that is part of the issue here. Transparency, uh, a concept, according to experts, understood differently uh, in China and the US. And the issue for Didi is is how do they move forward from this? Because what the Chinese regulator has said is that they are illegally using personal data. And it's hard to see how their business gets around that. They are, you know, a ride hailing company, taxi hailing. They have huge troves of personal data. And then that is is putting them at a real crossroads. They could see a hit to revenue because of not being able to be downloaded in China. And of course, the money that they raised from the IBO that was supposed to be funneled into expanding the business, that is also, uh, you know, a big question now. Where do they go? from here. Yeah, there are many questions that arise here and ironies too. I mean, you've got reports that the Chinese government is looking to restrict a Chinese firms' ability to come over to international markets, the United States in particular, and list. You've already had a, a U.S. government and this next U.S. government has not really done anything to change it. Throwing Chinese companies onto the blacklist, Huawei comes to mind. So actually, the two nations are aligned in some kind of decoupling of the, of the financial markets. It begs the question, why come? Why come to the United States? Why did Didi list in the United States at all or any company? Yeah, the pull of New York today continues to be very strong for a number of reasons. The, the, the reputational uh, sort of uh, you know, uplift you get from listing on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ, the liquidity of those markets is unmatched. There's a huge pool of investors. There's, a, of course, a world-famous tried and tested uh, IPO process. And, and of course, the, the fundamentals of the U.S. economy as well, uh, you know, rebounding very strongly after the pandemic and, of course, very strong even before that. The numbers are still very high uh, of Chinese companies coming to list here. According to Jeffrey's, uh, 10 Chinese companies uh, launched U.S. IPOs in 2020. That was over 20% of the market, excluding SPAC. So it's so still extremely, extremely strong. And I will say that, look, what we saw, what we saw when, when, when the market opened yesterday after the 4th of July holiday, the, the, the massive drop in DD stock, you did see some of the other Chinese listed companies go down too, the likes of JD.com, Baidu. But those are now coming back up this morning. So I think U.S. investors perhaps repricing it for a bit of this political risk, but they're still interested in these stocks. Yes, still interested in these stocks. Two words, Hong Kong. It reminds you of the importance of that as a conduit between the international markets and China. Fascinating. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right. It looks like the forces, not with Microsoft after all, the Pentagon cancelling a $10 billion cloud contract known as Jedi, which is awarded to the tech giant over Amazon during the Trump era. Paula Monica is here to explain all the details. Paula, and of course, 20 months have passed since that contract was awarded. Amazon filed a lawsuit the next day and said, hey, this was political because President Trump used his influence to prevent us getting it. And now it's been abandoned. Yeah, a huge legal battle ensued, as you pointed out, Julia, because, of course, we know that President Trump was not a fan of Amazon and CEO at the time, Jeff Bezos. He's no longer CEO. We now have AWS head Andy Jassy in charge of Amazon. And, of course, uh, I think there were legitimate concerns about the Pentagon being influenced by the White House. And that was the reason for the uh, decision to potentially go with Microsoft. That's now all off the table. And we're going to have a new contract 
open for other bidders. So Amazon is back in the fray. Microsoft can still bid. But you might see other big cloud companies like Oracle and IBM and Google Owner Alphabet potentially submit bids for this new contract that won't be called Jedi. Sorry, Star Wars fans. I know. We've lost all the opportunities to make puns about the force returning, the force is with who, and we'll have to get over it. The share price reaction on this, though, was quite interesting. Amazon up a little bit. Something's better than nothing if you can somehow get a piece of this going forward, hopefully. Microsoft little change, so perhaps they understood that this was always going to be embattled and challenged going forward, too. What replaces it, Paul? Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to have a new bidding process, and uh, Amazon is perceived to be a leading contender. And I think that is one of the reasons why Amazon stock surged yesterday to a new all-time high. It's up again today. And this really is fascinating because it comes, as we pointed out, as Andy Jassy is now the CEO of Amazon. It's not Jeff Bezos anymore. Jassy obviously has the cloud chops. And I think many investors are hopeful that Amazon will build its cloud unit even more under Jassy as the head of the entire company. And winning part of this new DOD contract could be a feather in his cap if Amazon winds up getting some of this new contract. Yeah, I think the key word there is some of this. I wonder whether you just avoid all future legal suits and you just share it out among the most successful cloud payers in the nation, quite frankly. What about a breakup fee? Is there a breakup yeah. fee when you have a instant legal battle, but you've promised a contract to somebody, it's a government contract, and it was, after all, worth $10 billion. Yeah, there's no breakup fee specifically mm. laid out per se, but the DOD has said that Microsoft can apply for a bit of a recouping of uh, some of the costs as, as part of a termination process. Whether or not it gets that and how much remains to be seen, because of course, Microsoft still could wind up winning a big chunk of whatever this new contract looks like. Yes. Paul and Monica, we shall wait and see. Thank you very much for that. Let's move on. The ever given, given freedom. The giant container ship that blocked the Suez Canal back in March is finally able to continue its journey. It was allowed to leave after the Japanese company that owned it reached a compensation deal with Egyptian authorities. Hopefully we'll be able to take you there shortly for the latest. But for now, we're going to Take a break here on First Move. And coming up, new opportunities are taking flight at Air Asia, although they're closer to the ground. The CEO, Tony Fernandez, is next. And one of the biggest names in African pharma just got a huge injection of cash. Aspen Pharma Care's CEO joins us to talk supercharging vaccines on the African continent. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. As I was saying before the break, this is a take two, the ever given, given freedom, we hope. The giant container ship that blocked the Suez Canal back in March is finally able to continue its journey. It was allowed to leave after the Japanese company that owned it reached a compensation deal with Egyptian authorities. Ben Weedman joins us with more. Ben, the burning question here, do we know what the compensation was that now allows the ever given to escape? Julia, no, we do not know the precise details. Uh, we do know sort of what was behind it in terms of the uh, arguments. Now, on the 29th of March, the Ever Given was freed uh, by Egyptian engineers, workers, and a, a Dutch salvage company. Uh, but almost immediately afterwards, the Egyptian government, through the Suez Canal Authority, uh, made demands for compensation, and an Egyptian court demanded, basically ordered 
ordered the seizure of the ever given until a settlement was reached. Initially, the Egyptian government was demanding $916 million in compensation. That includes $300 million for the salvage operation, in addition to $300 million for reputational damage to the Suez Canal. Now, the insurance company balked, obviously, at that. The Egyptians lowered their demand to around $550 million, with the insurance company making a counteroffer of 150. But the actual contents of the agreement will remain secret. Uh, however, there was the signing ceremony of the settlement today in Ismailia and Khaled Abu Bakr, the Egyptian lawyer for the Suez Canal Authority, said afterwards that the ever given will always be welcome in the Suez Canal. And a statement from the Japanese company that owns the ship said that that company and the ship will continue to be a regular and loyal customer of the Suez Canal. So it was a complicated legal process, but it appears that the relationship still stands. Julia? Yes, it does. Ben, great to have you with us. Ben Weedman there. Thank you. Now, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And for Air Asia Group, that means diversification beyond call, cool, low-cost air travel. The group says by 2024, half of its sales will be from alternative sources. And they're already developing a super app, a logistics business and a payments arm called Big Pay, amongst others. Today, they announced the acquisition of Gojek's operations in Thailand. Gojek, as we learned yesterday, if you remember, is an Indonesian ride-hailing and payment service. And Tony Fernandez, the CEO of Air Asia, is here with more. Tony, congratulations on the deal. Talk us through what this brings to your group. Thanks very much. Well, it, it, it's, it's a big statement for us um, of intention. I mean, Gojek is probably the most foremost unicorn in uh, Southeast Asia. And, uh, you know, them selling us their, their operation in Thailand and investing in our operation uh, gives us a lot of credibility and also gives us a lot of speed that we can ramp up our ambitions uh, much quicker now. So a big day for us. What do you bring to this business that perhaps some of the other competitors in the region don't have or aren't doing well? Because, you know, I look at some of the Gojek business in Thailand. They made a loss in 2019. They made a loss in 2020. There's Grab there already. There's Estonia's Bolt that's making headway. What difference is you acquiring this business and operating there going to make when there's already fierce competition in Thailand? Let's be clear. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> number one, that competition is only in Bangkok. I mean, AirAsia has a huge brand in Thailand. We operate in virtually every uh, primary, t secondary, and tertiary city. So, you know, the battle has been in Bangkok. What we've been good at is going into secondary and tertiary cities. Plus, we're going to grow the business much more. We're not just ride hailing. We're not just food. We have a very, very big travel business. We have a very, very big uh, fintech business as well. So, you know, we get some good kind of operations from Gojek um, and we supplement our brand, our data, plus some other lines of business, which are predicated around fintech and uh, logistics as well. What about profitability? Do you have any sense well, of you know, how quickly you can sort of branch out into those second and third tier cities, which is a great point. And actually, we were discussing that with GoTo, the president of GoTo yesterday and the opportunities in China. Right. So it's certainly something that resonates. But do you have a sort of time frame for that? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're in the business of making money, even though right. we're an airline. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we, we don't understand some of these unicorns that, you know, have, I mean, they've been fueled with loads and loads of capital, so they've given away their product. But uh, we believe within 12 months, in Malaysia, we already are making money on our super app. So within 12 months, we feel quite confident we'll be profitable. The strong thing that we bring is, you know, 19 years worth of uh, lots of data and a brand that people know, supplemented by a very strong ecosystem. So I'm hoping within 12 months, we will be profitable. You know, it's fascinating. And I mentioned the statistic when I introduced you at the beginning, because it was what we discussed last time you were on, this idea that 50% of your revenues mm, are going to be outside right. of the, the core airline business by 2024. I mean, you have, from what I see, an engineering firm, aviation services, the food group, Santan, you've got the super app, logistics, um, big pay, yeah. the payments business as well. Just can you give me a breakdown of what the revenues are today and what that looks like, just in terms of these pieces of the business, even just broadly? Well, it, it, you know, it's, it's going to be very gravitated towards the uh, digital side right now uh, because aviation is kind of grounded at the moment. Um, but, you know, uh, that will change. Borders are opening soon. So as, as, you, as my prediction remains the same at you know, 2024, we will be about 50-50. Um, but it's all, you know, it's all derived from the airline, which has created all these assets. You know, the fact that in uh, the space of, 18 months, we built a, a, a big pay, which we've just applied just a few days ago for a banking license uh, into one of the number one uh, top kind of fintech operations here with 1.2 million members. That data, that consumer channel is allowing us to ramp up very quickly at a much lower cost than others. I mean, I saw that actually, the application for the banking license. How long does that take? And, and give me some sense of your plans there and scaling up, because that is quite fascinating. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, Central Bank has closed all applications now. There were 29, and uh, they're going to give out five licenses. So, you know, we have a, a one in six chance. They uh, are talking about announcing the winner sometime next year by the second quarter. So, again, I think what we bring to the party is inclusivity. You know, we're probably one of the few brands in Asia. When I took over Air Asia, only 6% of Malaysians flew. Now everyone flies. Uh, that could be the same could be said for the unbanked and the um, uh, financial services products that many people are still not included in that fintech, in that financial system. So we know how to communicate. We know how to make products simple and get more people that are unbanked to be banked. And the fact is, over the last 18 months, you know, many people who didn't use many fintech products such as remittances, etc., all, all trading online now, sending their remittances online. Many of them are our customers, and they're doing it on their mobile phone as opposed to the traditional methods of going to Western Union or even, even more expensive methodologies. So I think what we bring to the party is inclusivity and value. It's very important to me that our products are not high cost. You know, we're not preying on these people to charge them inflated interest rates. We're using their data to price products properly, get them included into the financial system. And uh, also a large part of the market is people that fly with us, which is SME, small, medium enterprises, who really haven't got a great banking service. So consumers plus small, medium enterprise companies is where we're targeting and getting them included into the financial circles. It's sort of the same model that you applied to low-cost air travel as well, as you say, but you've also 100%. already got 
the sort of the investor, well, not the investor, the, the customer base already to try and tap into, or at least the beginnings of it, I'm sure yeah, it will I get mean, bigger. I mean, that's, yeah, that's the beauty. One of the things airlines mm. haven't realized, which I realized early on, you know, 19 years ago, when I started AirAsia and I came from the music business, right, I, I thought one of the biggest assets was the customer. And the fact that once you had the trust of the customer, you could sell other things to it. So we built a direct communication with the customer. We didn't go through travel agents. You know, we used the website. We were very early into e-commerce. Uh, we owned our own magazine, etc. cetera. And ancillary income contributed 20% of our revenues, but 50% of our profits. And now with the digital world, we're just extending that into new products and services. But airline data is very rich. You know, you can't make up your name. We've got lots of loyalty information, and it's a slightly higher spend than um, going on a, in a ride-hailing cab or buying some food and, uh, you know, your, your KYC. So that's the biggest asset. I didn't see the data revolution 19 years ago, but I always wanted to keep my connection with a customer and not have any intermediaries so that I could sell other things. And then when this amazing you know, industrial revolution came along, we decided to to move into it using the, the biggest asset we had, which was our data and our knowledge of our customers. Yeah, that was a light bulb moment. The depth of the data is definitely a differentiating yes. factor. Um, yeah. As you said, right now that the revenue split is sort of dominated by the digital side simply because of the challenge of air travel. I mean, what are you seeing and what are you thinking as we see cases rising in places like Indonesia, places like Malaysia, as mm -hmm. we've recently talked about on the show. And do you think we ever get to the point where you can seamlessly travel with vaccinations? Because we're clearly not there yet. And it's a real struggle, I think, around the world. Yeah, but I mean, we, we have to take um, some kind of solace from the US and, and Europe, where vaccinations are, are substantially higher. It appears that, you know, I mean, the UK has loads of, loads of cases, but hospitalizations and deaths are uh, much more manageable, um, and so as the world get vaccinated, as the world gets vaccinated, then travel will will rebound in a, in a strong way. So we believe we're probably about you know four or five months behind Europe, um, and in some ways ahead because the Delta variant is is quite uh, uh, prevalent here. It's happening in Spain, it's happening in UK and, and parts of America now, but vaccination is the answer. Um, you know, God willing, there's no other variant. But at the moment, it appears all the vaccines work with the Delta variants, etc. And so the key is getting that that supply up. Now, we were obviously behind the curve in supply as Europe and America took a large part of it. That supply is coming in. Malaysia had a record day yesterday of 330,000 vaccinations, which is a remarkable 1% of our population in a day. So, you know, I believe by September, we think the trigger point is about 50% of the population having double vaccinations. And in parts of Asia now, we, we're getting the Johnson & Johnson and the CanSino vaccine, which is one shot. So that's our, that's our kind of passport and our you know, get out of jail card. Um, and it appears to be picking up speed. And uh, you know, we, we, we take solace from what's happening in the States and Europe. So September, yeah. October. Fingers crossed. That's the sort of timeline that yeah. you're looking at. Tony, I just want to point out, because I do watch your Instagram, and I, I did see a sleeping video of you, which was really funny, because you've clearly been working all hours to get this, um, this deal done. I, I think my team have got it, so we might, we might be able to show it, we might not. But anyway, it's you asleep. I just wondered, we don't have it. What a shame, because it's really funny. But you did mention, among a few things, England and the game coming up. 
Any views on whether England can beat Denmark yeah, and yeah, whether uh, England can take home the, the uh, Euros? Yeah, I'm I'm off to bed uh, after this and waking <laughs> up at three. In the morning. I was about to say um, to go watch it. You know, people are wondering why I'm supporting England. I've never been a traditional English supporter, but I know so many in the team, and I think it's it, it's time for England to win the Euros and and to stop talking about the 1966 World Cup. It's a good team, <laughs> good lads, good guys. You know, it's a shame it's Denmark because I mean, I saw I saw a little ad from the Denmark uh, captain. And uh, obviously, they've got all that emotional thing with Christiansen. But I really do hope England bring it home. And uh, it'd be great for the country and great for the, for the, you know, for all the people. Yes, we can't keep harking back to that World Cup win of 1960. Yeah, know, got, it's you know, about time. Tony, England I'm going to let you go. Go to bed. Go to bed and get some sleep, please. And congratulations on Thank the deal. You. Tony Thanks Fernandez, the AirAsia CEO. Thank you. We're back after this with the market open. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on this Wednesday, and we've got a brand new record for tech in early trading. But blue chips are flat and uh, fresh weakness in financials as bond yields dropped to levels not seen since February. The benchmark 10-year yield close to the key 1.3 percent level amid concern in the bond market that U.S. growth may be peaking. That pressuring the likes of J.P. Morgan, Bank of America and pretty much all of the major U.S. banks whose profits benefit from higher yields. You can charge higher interest rates. We continue to monitor growing uncertainty surrounding U.S. listed Chinese tech shares too. Broader tech investors seemingly unperturbed. But just take a look at that. Shares of ride-hailing app Didi, as we've been discussing, falling once again after being targeted by Beijing in a broader cybersecurity data crackdown. Okay, let's move on. Vaccinating Africa. Aspen Pharmacare, the largest pharmaceutical company in Africa, is working with Johnson & Johnson to make COVID-19 vaccines. Aspen has also announced it's raised more than $700 million from global institutions, including the World Bank, to ramp up its production capabilities. And joining us now is Stephen Saad. He's the CEO of Aspen Pharmacare. Stephen, fantastic to have you on the show Congratulations on the cash injection. And we'll talk about that and what you're going to do with the money in a few moments. But just start by explaining who you are and what you do and what you're already doing as far as COVID vaccines are concerned. So in in terms of COVID vaccines, we are doing the full finish for for Johnson & Johnson. And what that means is that you receive the drug substance or the API, you receive it in a sort of a frozen bottle and then you turn that and turn it into a vaccine. And that's what we do. Um, and we we probably the leading supplier at the moment to Johnson & Johnson. Uh, and uh, and very proud to have done that because all the other manufacturers were in either in Europe or the US initially. So uh, we're very pleased to have, to have done this successfully. I mean, the vast majority of vaccines that Africa's the continent uses are imported. So having some kind of manufacturing capability, even to your point, if it's late stage manufacturing, the fill and finish is vitally important. What does this money, this just over $700 million investment allow you to do now? I think I think your point is so, so correct about, you know, capacitation of Africa and needing your own capacities. Mm. So what this cash injection did was actually Aspen had all its own funding and has its own. And this really was just it's a commercial loan in the same way our existing commercial loans are. So we actually substituting finance for us. What was far more important was the people that were backing us at the World Bank, et cetera, 
who were particularly committed and are committed to capacitating Africa. Because what we found, as you said, there's over 90% of our vaccines are imported, a very high majority from India. So when India cut off all exports, effectively Africa has, was left without vaccines. Particularly, as you know, there was an issue at the Baltimore plant of the drug substance for the J&J vaccine. So you don't have any capacity, you don't have any product, no one's going to supply you product before their own country, so best you have your own capacitation. So what we're really hoping for with, with strong backers here is to look for things like technology transfers. And, you know, we don't want a technology transfer for free. free. We'll pay by dose. But, you know, if the world keeps saying we're not safe till we're all safe, you know, I keep saying, but Africa says, listen, we'd like to be safe at the same time because they have the money to buy the vaccines. They just can't access them quickly enough. So it's, it's a very sad situation, but it's one in which has sort of woken and shaken the continent. And from an Aspen perspective, we've got two objectives. One is we'd like to build our capacities and capabilities up to sort of one person, one syringe for Africa. So that would be capacities beyond a billion sort of COVID doses. Um, and then we'd like to more broadly capacitate the continent where we've got other facilities as well, so that we never again are left uh, at the back of the queue. But a very important injection for us, more of influence of people who we hope will help ultimately get the technology transfers that we require to be able to look after this continent. There was so much in there, important information. I think the statistic that you gave, and we we agree, 99% of vaccines imported, and you get to a crisis like this and people restricting supplies, whether that's India or the United States, and suddenly Africa is left far, far behind. To your point, though, Stephen, about technology transfers, we had the World Bank president on the show talking about uh, vaccine manufacturing hubs, actually having places that do have the scientific capabilities and the credentials already to acquire those patents and to manufacture vaccines. Are you one of those people, if you were given the patent, could you start from scratch and produce COVID-19 vaccines? Sure. And and my view, my view on that is, you know, when one has technology, you've got to respect that technology. Um, and so I'm very comfortable to pay for it and the drug. And, but what you really need is a transfer technology transfer to really get to speed. So if you really want to help people quick, you need to get to speed. We would be we are participants and would be recipients of a transfer of that intellectual property um, so that you could get it to speed. But certainly your points are valid and the WHO and many others are talking about setting up hubs like this. Um, and I, I think these are, are going to be important, but you've also got to be careful they don't end up like, um, you know, white elephants, like some of these sort of post-World Cup uh, soccer stadiums or rugby stadiums. You, you've got to be able to keep these factories warm uh, and keep the technologies warm. And so there's quite a bit that one needs to think about, because by the time you rush in and put in a certain technology for a COVID vaccine, maybe COVID's over. And then what do you do? So it's very important it's integrated into a strategic business plan beyond COVID only. Talk to me about um, supplies that you can produce now as a result of this investment, what we're looking at um, at this stage and, and where you anticipate they will go. So right now we could produce about 300 million doses by the end of the year, we'll be up to closer to 450 million doses. And we, we want to, over the next two years, get that up to a billion doses. 
Um, so that's and, and we've put in, you know, we've really built and paid for the, most of the infrastructure. So it's really a little it's not massive capex required because it will be adding machinery. But once again, we want to know that that machinery can be utilized more broadly. Um, and that's where being part of Africa now is going to be important that Africa draws together because Africa's got a lot of people, well over a billion people, and this is a consumer product. You know, one person, one vaccine, whatever it might be, or two vaccines. So Africa has a lot of demand. And if we work together and try and place that demand with, uh, with our, through our own facilities, our own capacity, together with uh, technology partners, we're in a position to keep our factories busy sustainably. Um, yeah. Aspen has an added advantage in that we're one of the largest suppliers of anesthetics globally, and those also go into a similar facility and require vials and, and, and pre-filled syringes and similar technologies. So we would maybe be able to take those technologies we have in anesthetics and put it more broadly across the African continent as well. Yeah, it's one world and we all have to start acting like it. Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about what you're doing. Thank you to you and your team as well. And uh, come back soon and we'll we'll talk about progress. Stephen Starr there, the CEO of Aspen Pharmacare. So thank you so much for your time. All right. And finally, on First Move, it's time to strike up the band. Yes. Football's coming home, we hope. The Royal Colts Room Guards were invited by the Prince of Wales and the Duchess of Cornwall to Clarence House to show their support for the England team. The semi-final against Denmark kicks off in a few hours' time and I wish both sides the best of luck. I just wish England a little bit more luck. Um, sorry. That's it for the show. It's been a long time. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN as always. Marketplace Asia is next. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.